0: The Secrets of Middle-Earth is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Middle-Earth, where we discuss the hidden themes and deeper layers found in the works of J.R.R. Tolkien, whether in his writings or in any of the media derived from them. I'm Thomas Salerno, and joining me today on the panel is Jeff Hecker. Hey there, Jeff. Hey, Thomas. And introducing the newest member of our podcast fellowship, Mike Schram. How are you doing, Mike? Good, Thomas. How are you doing? I'm great. And be sure, everyone, to follow The Secrets of Middle-Earth in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or on any podcast directory or app. And you can find us on social media at facebook.com slash or on Twitter, or X, I guess it's now called, yeah. <laughs> where we are at SQPN. Or on Instagram, where we are at Starquest Network. And don't forget that The Secrets of Middle-Earth now has official merch, including a t-shirt, which has all of the races of Middle-Earth, the major races, plus the Hail Mary... In the Elvish language of Quenya, you can get this awesome design on mugs, stickers, mouse pads, notebooks, phone cases, and basically anything you want by visiting sqpn.com slash merch.
1: Can I get it on a ring?
0: Oh, you... (laughs) You, you know what's weird? I don't think we actually have like jewelry options, but that that would be very on brand. But it's a great way for you guys to support the show and show your love for Tolkien and his wonderful world of Middle Earth. So, Mike Schramm, he is a colleague of mine uh, from the Voyage Comics blog. He's also one of the co-hosts of the Voyage Comics podcast, and he's been on SQPN with us before. We recently reviewed Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse over on The Secrets of Movies and TV Shows, which you can check out on the SQPN YouTube channel or on sqpn.com slash secrets. So, uh, Mike, why, why, why don't you tell us a little bit and uh, the audience, a bit about your journey with Tolkien. You know, when did you first become aware of his work?
1: Yeah, so... uh I, I promise it's not as it's not as bad as I've only seen the movies or I saw the movies first or anything like that. I actually I can remember I have a distinct memory um, with one of my friends. And this might go back all the way to like kindergarten or first grade where this friend's grandma took the both of us to a stage production of The Hobbit. And so wow. I can still kind of see in my and this is like a community theater, you know, like local community theater sort of production. And um, I can still see the this like, you know, Goblin King. Um uh, like on this pillar or throne or whatever, looking at Bilbo and the and the dwarves in or under the under the mountain. So. Uh, so anyway, that was I guess you could say technically that was my first one, you know, and that's always, I guess, still kind of sticks with me. Um, how they handle
0: Smaug, by the way? <laughs> yeah.
1: You know, my my memory doesn't go to that specific one. My oh, guess okay. would be if if I you know, if I can just kind of tap into what would you, what would any community theater on a budget do is you have a a big voice in the background and red, red lights with smoke is kind of my guess is what you, what you got to do. Right. Um, so, uh, and then, yeah, like red, red, the Hobbit was the, the first one that I can remember reading. And then the, you know, when I was a kid, the, the Peter Jackson, Lord of the Rings, movies came out. And so I I have to, you know, this is my confession. I did see those before I read the Lord of the Rings books. Um, I actually read the Silmarillion before I read the Lord of the Rings. And I don't know why I went to that one first, but uh, you know, maybe it was because it it felt easier to digest with the smaller stories. It felt like they're more episodic, but um, read the Silmarillion as I got a little bit older and then did read the 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 actual trilogy and I have gone through those a couple of times, um, and of course, you know, seen seen the movies multiple times and all that stuff too.
0: Right. Yeah. It, it says in our notes here that 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 you like the Ainulindale, and I'm glad you wrote that because yeah. that that's one of my favorite parts of the Silmarillion. It was the first part that I was aware of.
1: So it was the one that, um, and you know, I kind of jokingly said like, well, of course, right? I mean, everybody likes. Well, maybe not. I don't know how popular it is. Like. It, it just is the one that always grabbed me. Maybe it was because it it did, was so reminiscent of the just the image of the biblical kind of creation narrative. Um, but it also presented creation in such a beautiful way, right? Almost like yeah. the, the metaphysics of creation, besides just telling it in the story. And and even though like I don't have this personal oh I'm I'm such a musical person or I play a lot of music, but just reading that as a young person and seeing creation told through music just was, was captivating. And, um, and then obviously you have the whole, it's very, uh, if you think of, um, Boethius's present presentation of good and evil and even with St. Augustine and evil being a um, privation of good and how you can see that in this narrative of, you know, of the Silmarillion or especially the fall of Melkor. uh, like I said, it's just, it's, it's grabbed me because the theology is so rich.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And in fact, the the first time I ever heard of the Ainulindale, it was at a lecture that one of the priests in our diocese was giving at our Mm. seminary here. And he was expounding on the the theological richness of it. And of course, after that, I had to run out and get the Silmarillion and read it. Mm. Did you have a favorite Middle Earth character?
1: Mike? Yeah. So, um, you know, we were kind of talking a little bit about this before the show, you were saying how you, you know, all these teachers and and me being a teacher myself, I'm kind of a sucker for the wise mentor, um, Mm. trope or the wise mentor figure in, in a story. And so of course, you know, I got to pick Gandalf, right. As that wise, wise mentor, wise figure in the Hobbit, Lord of the Rings, all that stuff.
0: Yeah. Gandalf's great to, you know, all the, story. Really, we of all the stories, we know the most about him, probably, and he's he's just such a great character. Well,
1: and yeah, the most who's he's obviously good the whole time, clearly good, and Mm -hmm. there's no ambiguity with with Gandalf too. Which, again, when when these stories are presented to young people who are searching for that, it's like we sometimes will jump immediately immediately to the whole like oh people are over the whole um, dichotomy of good versus evil, and yet we still are drawn to this clearly good, you know, and, and, you know, powerful character too, right? Whether that's Aragorn or Gandalf. Right. So, um, uh, moving on, um,
0: Jeff, do, do we have any, uh, rings of power news this week? I know it, it's been kind of sparse lately.
2: Yeah. The only thing I saw, and, th- and this is just more of a rumor than anything, is that there'd be a two, like a battle that takes place over two episodes in the next, in rings of power season two. So hmm. that's really the only thing I've seen. And, um, there's probably... Yeah, with all the strikes going on, I I don't know where they are in the process of filming or post-production of it. So I think it's in post-production now. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I think we yeah, maybe we talked about that before. So that's all that I all that I'm aware of. But So hopefully so, if it's in post, it means it comes out in next so year. Uh yeah. They
1: saw the final season of Game of Thrones and said, "Oh, one an episode that's or a battle, that's one entire episode." And they said we need to double that. Is that what the <laughs> Well, well, either I mean, that like, or it's yeah. like it
2: starts. It you know how it starts in one episode and just continues in the next, and they kind of sort of did that with a, with the last couple of the last season, where like there was a battle going on, and then Mortar was created out of the whatever the, yeah, the south like aftermath and, Yeah, the
1: volcano yeah, so eruption and stuff.
2: So you kind of see a little bit of that. So maybe, they'll yeah. So we'll we'll see when that. As long as you know. it's
0: not like the insanely like because the third Hobbit movie is basically the whole movie is a battle and that, or at least the second half of it. And as long well, as when it's you've not got
1: five armies, I mean,
0: yeah, but it was so interminable. But anyway, like it's just... I, I just remember sitting in the theater in the third Hobbit movie and being impatient. And I'm like, I shouldn't be feeling this in a Tolkien adaptation. But before we, we start reviewing the Peter Jackson Hobbit movies by mistake, we, we have some listener feedback on a previous episode. We did our review of the fan film Born of Hope, which is about uh, Aragorn's parents and their story. Um, Paul Leon, one of our regular listeners, he writes on YouTube. Great overview of one of my favorite fan films. I'm glad you all enjoyed it. If I could make a fan film, I think I would make it about Boromir's Journey to the North starting with The Dream of the Valar and ending with him reaching Rivendell. As far as other fan films go, there's a fairly recent one called The Horn of Gondor that I enjoyed. It's a short one, about 20 minutes, and has a very Peter Jackson aesthetic. And Paul also included a link to that film, which we'll probably put here in the show notes. I haven't seen it yet, but that sounds Mm. that sounds interesting having Boromir as the main character of a fan film. Cause I think Boromir gets a bad yeah. rap, you know, cause ultimately he makes the right choice.
1: He needs, he needs more of a backstory that helps inform that kind of turn that he has. Right. Because yeah. if you hadn't read the book, I mean, even I think if you had read the books and you see the way that he becomes obsessed and kind of turns, you know, you don't get the whole backstory of his, you know, until the third movie where you see a little bit um, with Denethor and, um, and Faramir, mm-hmm. but yeah, to, to kind of have some of that, Um, exposition or or have some of you know you could have flashbacks to his childhood or even just the whole kind of rivalry with Aragorn when they were younger and stuff too
0: oh right yeah I completely forgot when uh, like when Aragorn visits Gondor when he's younger
1: I don't know know if rivalry would even be the most appropriate term but yeah right yeah interactions at least
0: and we have another bit of feedback on discord Dr. Aragorn writes It was a great discussion. I didn't notice during the movie many of the things you were critiquing, but they were certainly all valid points. If I were to direct a fan fiction film, I think I'd try of Baron and Luthien. The hardest part would not be making Huan's lines laughable, but I love the story in that chapter of The Silmarillion. I recently got the book Baron and Luthien but haven't read it yet. The book Baron and Luthien is actually great, Dr. Aragorn, because it has stuff that was cut from the final Silmarillion version of that story, including the villainous Tevildo, Prince of Cats, who is a giant (laughs) uh, evil uh, cat that works for Morgoth and uh Tivildo's T- a great villain but he eventually got replaced in- by Sauron himself in the Silmarillion yeah. version of the story. But I always thought Tolkien should have kept Tavildo 'cause cuz he's a as a separate character or maybe one of Sauron's many forms and names that we know he has cuz I, I feel like that would have been interesting. Yeah
2: and speaking of of Huwan's speaking I've just with uh ahsoka coming out soon and i've been rewatching star wars rebels and there's there's talking wolves in that show and they're Why? done really well so you could in in a serious way so that they could be very similar to that and like it's i mean it was weird in the show but it was good and it wasn't you know laughable so well, that's why I've
0: always thought animated Baron and Luthien would probably be best because, like, you can get away with things in animation
2: yeah. that maybe because doesn't she work. turn into she like wears like a bat cloak and like is flying around in a She's bat flying cloak around, the Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> and, it's, and it's almost like in um, because the eagles can talk in the books, but they don't say a word in the movies. Probably because they were worried it would be silly. So I I think there's there's stuff you yeah. can do in animation that they're leery of doing in live
1: action well if they can make smog talk then you know they should be able to make the eagles, uh, that's, right? tr-
0: that's true yeah. right and that was great
1: i thought it'd be cool if you know since the eagles are they're almost like or at least they're like Manway, right or they're they're sort of like mm-hmm. incarnations of these more like angelic or yeah um so you could almost just have them be like tele telekinetic or not telekinetic tele um telepathic. Telepathic, yeah. telepathic, t- thank you yeah uh And, you know, there's there's at least some justification for it. But now that we have the technology, just have them squawk with their beaks or something.
0: Yeah, Um, just 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 run with it. It'd be great. Um, And Jeff, you actually had um, an amazing story for us based on the last episode we recorded, which was on the uh, 1977 Rankin Bass Hobbit movie, that there was a nut. There was an earlier Hobbit, quote unquote, movie. From the 60s so what why didn't you tell us that story that's interesting. yeah so
2: so we mentioned this we mentioned this on recording and and after I looked up some more and it just was more and more crazy the more I read but <laughs> if, if you remember this is there's the dragon in this is named slag um Gollum is named Gollum. there's a princess uh is introduced to avoid having Bilbo as a bachelor what else uh-huh. they, there's a hole in the mountains full of gravelins. um but anyway, this the craziness though, was the production. So this thing is basically stop motion where it's pictures that were hand drawn and like moved across this a camera. And essentially there's a producer William Snyder had the film rights to Tolkien's work from 1964 to 67. And I'm reading off Wikipedia here, so if you want to go look at this look this up. He intended to make a feature length animated film of the Hobbit working with an animator named Gene D. Chu actually is an Academy award winning animator. He's he won like a, a short uh, Academy award for a short one. And he's done all, he's done like Tom and Jerry and other things. But anyway, um, the deal with 20th century Fox fell through. So Snyder asked each to make a 12 minute version quickly and cheaply. It's only slightly animated and consists mainly of camera movements over still pictures with some cutouts moving on the screen. Rushing through production, Snyder quote premiered unquote the film on June 30th, 1967 the last day before his film rights would expire. He paid people a dime to give back to him and then come and watch the film in a small Manhattan projecting projection room. He had them sign statements that they paid to see a Hobbit film, which allowed Snyder to retain the film rights. He then sold the rights back to Tolkien for a hundred thousand dollars approximately. And this basically remained unknown until 2012, when the animator posted on his blog about the film's history and he said, cuz so i guess no one really knew about this and it was released in 66 but there's it actually or he, he mentioned 66 but it actually was 67 but yeah you can look this up on youtube and i watched like a, a couple seconds of it and it's just really i mean it's 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 exactly what it sounds like <laughs> goofy is all get out but
1: i will say though if you consider the the production costs and then what he got for selling the rights that might be the most profitable middle earth movie ever made exactly I mean, well, yeah
0: yeah depending on i guess on what he initially paid for the rights if anything. yeah it doesn't oh. it doesn't
2: say that but yeah wow. so that was that was just after we recorded that was something i found out that viewers or listeners might find interesting
0: that I, technique that you mentioned of moving the camera over still images that's actually what george lucas did for one of his early fan film uh not fan films uh student films okay. he, he made a film called i think it's just called life where he moved the camera over images from Life magazine of like protests and like um war photo Vietnam War photographs and stuff, and he set it to music. And he actually like I think his the the film won the contest, but it was funny because he, he actually broke the rules. He wasn't he wasn't supposed to add a soundtrack, but he's just like, whatever, I'm <laughs> I'm adding a soundtrack to this movie. But yeah, so that 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 technique has has been used in like student like a sort of visual collage kind of technique. That's interesting. Now, now I have to go and watch this weird. Yeah, <laughs> 11 it, I watched a couple movie.
2: a couple seconds of it. It's very it's very goofy. But but yeah, there there we go. That's I don't think we need to do a full episode or breakdown. Oh, no, yeah. But <laughs>
0: <laughs> so for, for this episode, we're going to be covering a topic that. You know, it, it's it's an oversight that we haven't talked about it yet because the one episode to rule them all, the one episode to rule them all, the one topic to rule them all. It it it's on our logo for Pete's sake, and that is the one ring itself. Um, and and maybe we'll also cover the the other rings of power too, but I want to focus mainly on the one ring because it is it is the whole focus of the Lord of the Rings, the, the titular character Sauron is the Lord of the Rings. And I guess for some initial background, I, I think it'd be interesting to discuss where Tolkien kind of got this idea of a magic ring of power, because clearly that, that kind of totem or talisman goes back really far, not just as, like, a literary device, but into, like, myth and folklore, right? I don't know if, if either of you guys know, like, particular ring legends.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, and it's like... Rings are, you know, it's not an accident that he chose to use a ring and not just because it's so present to, you know, anybody that that you talk to, anybody that you look at. It's like you can think of so many examples where a ring is has some symbolic significance. And, you know, even in the, the poem that's written on it, where it's in the darkness, bind them, because rings have always had this really powerful, symbolic binding power. And obviously the first example that most people can think of is the wedding ring, right? Like that's the symbol that binds you to your spouse. But we, you know, we, we think of um, like the, like the bishop's ring, for example, is another sort of, is another one where it's sort of, it's, it's binding him to the church, that special relationship as a, you know, shepherd of the church and stuff too. So, I mean, rings have always sort of had this, this really profound and, you know, symbolic binding, You were kind of talking about the stories, but yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And one other biblical one I I hadn't thought of, I was kind of looking some up beforehand was uh, in in the story of, uh, in the old Testament of Joseph in Egypt, the Pharaoh gave him his signet ring Mm -hmm. as part of us, you know, extending his authority to Joseph who was kind of his um, like not prime minister, but like whatever his position, I can't remember what, what the position actually was called, but one of his, you know, kind of chief servants and who was kind of running some things for the pharaoh. That ring was a symbol of that authority.
1: And wouldn't that be the thing, like, you know, for thinking, you know, in like medieval or renaissance where they, they drip the wax over the letter or the important document. And then it's the the seal that's on the ring that kind of imprints that image too. Right. And so it becomes sort of symbolic of, you know, especially if it's going to be some new decree, like you're bound to this new law or this new whatever thing is being passed.
0: That reminds me, too, if if anyone's seen the the new film adaptation of Dune, the Paul Atreides, his father's signet yeah. ring becomes a kind of totem of his power as as the Duke of Arrakis. So even even in science fiction, we have, you know, it, Dune's kind of science fantasy. But even in that sort of universe, we have this idea of the. The, the Ducal signet ring being, you know, this this symbol of office. If, if Paul has it, he has power. It's almost like a ring of power. It doesn't have any magical power, but it's his his claim to authority over this planet.
1: This this is an after the fact example, but um, another author who fantasy author who really got uh, mythology when she tied it into her work. But um, in the Harry Potter series, one of the Horcruxes is the the ring that they have to destroy and the whole thing about and the whole idea is that you know the whole magic behind these is that you're binding your soul to these items to these magical items and so fittingly you know the one that ends up causing a lot of problems for everybody is this this ring as well
0: right because sauron binds essentially binds his soul to the ring he he puts most of his power into it that's that's interesting. You have having not. And I, I must confess, I'm probably one of the only people in my generation to have not read the Harry Potter series all the way through. Uh, I have nothing against it. It just it just did. Uh, by the time that was on my radar, I had already read the Lord of the Rings and became obsessed with it. So like,
1: <laughs> it doesn't to, have to be a competition. But no, I know. Yeah. Yeah. A, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: No. But yeah, I, I will get around to it eventually. But the uh, um, I was actually having my brothers read them and I was, we, he actually mentioned to me about the, the, the one, one of the horror cruxes is, is a ring, kind of a ring of power. And we were talking about that. It sounds interesting.
1: I would say somebody who is so steeped in the Lord of the Rings, you'll actually be set up to appreciate the Harry Potter books all the more because mm. you, you know, are, you, you have all of this kind of like, um ancient and medieval sort of symbolism as like your foundation. And then you're going to see how it's sort of, uh, represented in, you know, a a relatively fun and and more simple kind of version, right. In the books too.
0: Yeah. And I'm, I'm trying to think if there are any other like fantasy stories, this probably, I don't know how connected this is, but in, in Tolkien's Narnia books in, in the prequel, The magician's nephew. nephew. There are those uh, magic rings that the professor make, the evil professor that can take you to the wood between worlds. And so it's, and I think he even says that they're like, they're made out of like fairy dust. And he even brings Atlantis into it, which is very Tolkien, you know, this idea of lost Numenorean relics and stuff like that. And we we know that, that Tolkien and Lewis traded ideas all the time. Um, But I, I really think too, like besides like all the, the biblical illusions that we've mentioned, I think in our notes here too, we have the, uh, the, the ring of the, that the prodigal son receives too. When, when, when he comes back.
2: Yeah. it was a symbol of a symbol of his, yeah, his, uh, his sonship and a symbol of forgiveness from his father. And uh, so, yeah, definitely a good, yeah. And there was, there was lots more in the old Testament, like, the nose ring of um, Rebecca or uh, All right. like nose rings were a thing. There was even, they were when I guess when the Israelites were making their idol, Aaron was calling saying, bring, bring us your, the rings from your ears and the rings from your, from whatever you have to make right, our, so make our idols. Down. So
0: by the way, Aaron has the worst excuse ever when Moses comes <laughs> down from the mountain. And I've always found this hilarious where Moses is like, what have you done? Why have you made this idol? And Aaron's like, "Oh, I didn't make no idol. I, I just put the gold in the forge and this calf came out." And and if I'm Moses, I'm like, "Do you think I was
1: born yesterday?" That's like the <laughs> I was just I was just sleeping in the garden and this woman came out. <laughs> that, that might be right, a worse yeah, one. Yeah. That might be a worse excuse actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, but yeah. it's like it's
0: like no. Aaron is is so much trying to defray responsibility but it's funny too because the the ring itself right is it's funny i should bring that up is an idol throughout the lord of the rings people want it people invest you know so much clearly to gollum it is an idol it's his precious it's the only thing he cares about he 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 borderline worships the thing
1: well and um there's actually so the two that seem to most directly inspire Tolkien's use of the ring. Uh, you can see how, because actually, if you think of um, what does the ring, you're kind of saying, what does it do to Gollum? What does it start to do to Frodo? It yeah. has this transformative effect on them. And where do we, you mentioned Narnia before, there's actually another example of a ring, not one you put on your finger, but when Eustace puts the ring around his arm, he transforms into a dragon and that actually goes right to the fafnir story oh yeah right this transformative experience of a ring um the the norse mythology um or no yeah beowulf no beowulf fafnir um the fafnir i think
0: the the one in beowulf i don't think has a name fafnir's from uh uh right
1: okay yeah so um but you have, the, like I said, the, the transformative kind of nature of it, which we see happening to, we see has already happened to Gollum, but then we see happening to a little bit to Bilbo and then a little bit to Frodo as well. Um, but then the other one, just because, and I remember as a kid, I came across a story and I was like, wait a second, a ring that makes you invisible? Where have I heard this before? But the, uh, the ring of Gyges in um, uh, Plato talks about it or Socrates, I guess, talks about it. Oh. There's that myth of the, where it's this, and he kind of proposes it as a thought experiment where he says like this, this person came across a ring and, um, you know, and it made him invisible and he kind of describes what his life was like afterwards because he didn't have to follow the rules anymore. He didn't have to follow the societal conventions because he had this power, this ability to get away with everything. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and like I said, it, you know, Plato putting in the words of Socrates, he uses it as a thought experiment when it comes to the binding power of justice, right? Because we think of, you know, do we just see justice as the rules that everybody else puts on me? Or is it something that I am beholden to even when nobody's looking or when nobody can see me? And he, and like I said, the the ring is a perfect example because even though, you know, ring is supposed to be a binding thing, right? Think of the spouses. This character, he seems to be unbound, and yet now he is all the more a slave to his passions. He, you know, I think, it, what is he, he steals, he, um, you know, gets away with, I think, some uh, philandering or you know, just um, promise, you know, sexual like, sort of sins. Um, I think he might kill somebody, too. So it's like he's now given himself over, or he's bound himself to these passions, even though he's unbound by the societal conventions. And so it becomes this kind of parable too. Interesting.
0: They, clearly, that story was clearly an influence on HG Wells' Invisible Man. It's almost like an, an an ancient version of that, where you know the 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 titular character of the Invisible Man feels completely unbound and 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 free because of his ability to get away with various become a criminal mastermind essentially because no one can see him, but. Even he, at, at least in the movie version by by Universal in the the 30s, he has to deal with the fact that he's become invisible permanently, almost like the the Ring Wraiths um, oh, yeah. with their rings of power. And Gandalf even tells Frodo that if, if using the One Ring will eventually make you invisible permanently and will turn you into a wraith. So there's well, in that.
1: Sense, yeah, you get exactly what you wanted, but now mm-hmm. you have to live with it
0: live with it forever, including all of the, the, the bad consequences of that. And yeah, it's, it's interesting that like we, we have the different, the, the rings of power are sort of different for each race, you know, for, for men, they're, they're clearly just seductive um, talismans, you know, they're about power and they, they seem to make the humans who are given them more power hungry for dwarves, it, their rings increase their greed for, for gold and riches, but don't turn them into wraiths because dwarves kind of have that resistance against domination, but they can be influenced. And the elf rings, which Sauron never touched and didn't have anything to to do with making, are about preserving unstained things that are beautiful. So it's interesting that we have all these different kinds of rings of power but they can all be dominated by this or, or corrupted in some way mm. by the one ring.
2: Yeah. It'll be interesting in rings of power going forward. Cause at the end of the, the first season, the elven rings were created. Right. Um, which while not directly forging them himself, Sauron or, you know, uh, what was his name? Um, I can't think of his like fake name, right? off. The Halbrand. The... Halbrand. Halbrand. Yeah. He yeah. Yeah. was, he was involved with like, hmm, maybe you should try, Binding it with Mithril or binding it with some, you know, this or that. He so, taught them the techniques. Yeah. yeah. So. Was
1: it like the gold of, or the yeah, needed the, like the gold of somewhere? I from Yeah. yeah well, they,
2: they needed Galadriel's. Valinor. Yeah. It was her dagger that they had to, because it was, it was pure um Valinorian silver or gold or whatever it was. But the Mithril was like the binding thing that would, that would make it work. But but yeah, it'll be interesting to see in the show if they, because I mean, I, 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 I'm not as uh, you know clear on the or I I'm, I'm not I'm more of the movie guy on this podcast than I've read the books of course, but it's I'm not like as knowledgeable. But I don't remember the timeline where the ring where the one ring is actually forged compared to um like the events of the of of this period of the show, like of leading up to kind of the Akalabeth. Right.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well it, it'll definitely be forged. It's an interesting question because the one ring is definitely forged in Mordor before Sauron is taken as prisoner to Numenor. And there's actually a question of whether, because Tolkien is never clear on this, of whether he brings the One Ring with him to Numenor. Because there's, I tend to go with the fan theory that believes he did, because it would explain the way he's able to so easily manipulate people in Numenor. But there's another fan theory that says he left it in Barad-dûr, in Mordor, because like, well, how does the ring survive the destruction of his body in the downfall of Numenor? But, you know, he's, he's a spirit. He can carry objects even if he doesn't have a physical body with him, but it'll, it'll be interesting to see which line of reasoning they kind of go with in the show.
2: Well, and the ring could be carried by, cause it could be carried by the water to back to Middle Earth because that's because when it fell into the the when this when it when a silver was killed and the ring fell into the water it made its way to uh to to Gollum or to Smeagol at the time that's a good point because at the Council of Elrond
0: Gandalf mentions it's no use throwing the ring in the ocean because the ocean will just bring it back to Middle Earth
2: so So the ring you know has a will of its own that could maybe influence some you know some some of the elements like can literally influence water to kind of move it along, uh, to, so it can be found. That's
0: a good point that we should talk on that the, the ring has a will. Because mm. Sauron has poured so much of his, I love how they say in the movie, his cruelty, his malice, and his will to dominate all life have been poured into this object. So the ring is not just a static or it's not even really a true inanimate object it has a will the will of sauron what do you guys think of that
1: yeah uh i was gonna make an ai joke but uh (laughs) uh, but i i think i stopped myself i used some prudence there um (laughs) but isn't that just you know because i was thinking like what's the what's the quote-unquote real life analog to you know pouring your 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 entire self your will into this other thing you know this like you said, inanimate object, but the whole idea, right? The whole magic of the the ring or of the story is that you almost can't say it's inanimate. I mean, you know, in a sense, and, and obviously we don't get into the whole alchemy of what, what's involved in the forging of it of like, well, where did that exactly happen? Was it just a regular ring and then he put all of his stuff or did it happen? You know, it you have to think that it happened in the actual construction or in the actual forging. Right. Right? And it, it kind of reminds me, you know, I already mentioned the, um, the whole, uh, the, the, the Harry Potter inspiration or um, analogy that kind of was inspired in some ways by Tolkien where it's like your, the, the putting, the sacrifice of yourself, whenever you sacrifice your time, your energy, your attention to something, right? When I sacrifice my time, energy, and attention to um, even just like, whether it's spending time with my kids or writing something or watching something, it's like I've put myself or my will into that activity, right? Right. And so in a sense, that's an inanimate, not object, but if you want to think of time that way, right, I have put my will into it, you know?
0: Yeah. Or it's like it's like subcreation. It's like art. The artist puts. Metaphysically, I guess, himself or herself into the artwork, whether it's music, literature, a statue, painting. when a
1: person reads a story and is inspired to do something was the will of the author moving you to do it? You know, it's like hmm. that person's will was put into those words or put into the, you know, the the events that were put into that story. And that will has now moved you. Now, obviously, it was your own cooperation. It was your own freedom with it. But in some ways, you know, we talk about how manipulative, like um, when when music gets very emotive or movies try to draw so much emotion out of people, it's like, is could there be a little bit of manipulation going on where it's like, that will is being imposed upon me to do this thing or to act this way or to be this way.
0: Right. Yeah. And I definitely, that's, you can definitely in the Peter Jackson movies, you definitely see the malicious will of the ring and the, the influence it has over people. And to the point where it, it almost starts to, to possess the user to, to take it over, mm-hmm. you know, of the, the way Frodo starts to act eventually when, especially when, once they cross over into Mordor, you know, it, his will almost starts to become merged with with Sauron's in a way, you know, and, yeah, and, I mean, and eventually he will claim it as his own at Mount Doom, kind of taking the place of Sauron.
1: I mean, a lot of people talk about how like when when we invest so much time and energy and attention into we'll just I know it's kind of everybody's favorite punching bag lately, but like we'll just say social media, like think of how transformative that can be on an individual. And so, you know, where is the will that is turning me into something like when they say, oh, this person, it was like a different, this person, you know, changed so much over six months because they started spending so much time on, you know, this website or on this, you know, going down this feed or whatever the case is, um, is that, is there, you know, not, I'm not trying to propose that that's like the analogy or the, the metaphor Tolkien is trying to create, but it's like, we can see that happening. We can see this inanimate thing you know, turning us into something else. Right. Just like it turned Smeagol into Gollum or turned Bilbo into, you know, that, I mean, that kind of scary figure in the, the first Lord of the Rings movie or, yeah. or, you know, it'll turn us into butter scraped over too much bread or something like that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and that's the thing too. Like it's, it's, it's common to read in sort of Catholic um, in a Catholic reading of the Lord of the Rings that the the ring, the one ring particularly, is a metaphor for the corrupting and addictive power of sin in our lives, I think is the most obvious one that you hear. And I, I think there's a lot of truth to that. Like when uh when Gandalf is explaining to Frodo, because Frodo's like, you know, what why doesn't Gollum just leave the ring? Well especially now that he doesn't have it. Why does he care about it? And Gandalf says he hates it and he loves it just like he hates and loves himself. And it kind of reminds me of that, that word that that line from St. Paul, where he talks about, I do the very things I don't want to do. And I leave undone the very things I'd like to do. It's like, you know, like we, we hate our sins if we have a well-formed conscience, but we also are still attached to them in a disordered way. And, and we'll keep going back just like Smeagol. He keep, he keeps going back and it's a, in the movie. It's a, it's so it's such a tragic portrayal of seeing Smeagol kind of like, what, what's the word? Not in a he, he, he kind of gets, you know, reeled back in. You know, he, he, he reverts to his previous addiction to the. He has a relapse, essentially, into his addiction to the ring.
1: Well, and that kind of gets into because yeah, one of the um, popular ways that a lot of uh, modern spiritual writers will talk about sin is they'll they'll kind of use the language of addiction, right? And so you can see that same sort of back and forth, or you can see it dramatized very well. Yeah, in I mean, that's the whole that's the whole idea when you watch. um, And what Frodo sees in Gollum is this: this is what I will become if I let it take take me over. Right. Right. If I give myself over to it, I I get to see, you know, that reflection, you know, every single day for however many months.
0: Yeah. And it's like it's interesting to see how Tolkien's ideas about the one ring evolved over time, because I think in, in the original version of The Hobbit, the ring was just a pretty useful plot device and it was only in the second edition which i think he did while he was he was starting to come up with the ideas for the lord of the rings that he really ran, went back and did some essentially what we would today call retcons where he he made the ring a more um more central to the story and having more of these supernatural powers where originally it was just frodo's ticket out of the goblin mines right you know he he won it in the the riddle game and and that was it he he didn't he didn't tell Gollum about it cuz otherwise Gollum wouldn't show him the way out and then ticket the, out of the
1: goblin mines ticket out of the uh, attack by the spiders ticket out of the prison by the elves it was a, <laughs> t- it was like it was a pretty good ticket, ticket.
2: into <laughs> into Erebor ticket to Right 90. yeah
0: exactly it it was this useful plot device to get Bilbo into places he couldn't otherwise get into and get him out of scrapes that would otherwise he couldn't escape you know but it's I like that he he seized on that plot device and says, I could tell a whole other story, you know, just based on this. And it's funny because I I really see, the more I learn about the Silmarillion and Tolkien's ideas about it, because that was what he thought was his true magnum opus, the, the stories that eventually were collected by his son Christopher into the Silmarillion. And he, I think his ideas about the Silmarils, came to influence his ideas about the rings of power because they, they have very similar aspects, you know, people desire them, people want them, you know, and they, they cause strife wherever they go in, in some of his later writings, he, he says that he saw the whole middle earth legendarium as the two great sagas of the jewels and the rings the jewels being, of course, the Silmarils, and this is why he he fought so hard to have the Silmarillion published and packaged with the Lord of the Rings, as a, as he says, like a supplement to the Lord of the Rings. His his publisher ended up not going for that, but he felt it was necessary because he he felt that the the sagas of the jewels and the rings were so deeply interconnected, and it was only in in preparing for this episode that. I started thinking about yeah, the Silmarils are kind of—it's almost like in in universe. Sauron takes some of his inspiration for crafting the Rings of Power from what he knows the Silmarils were during the First Age.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, isn't that fitting to all the you know we can, I, I mentioned briefly the um, the metaphysics of evil or evil as the privation of good, and so it makes sense that you have the character of melkor and sauron where they are um they're derivative right the stuff that they're going to have is is going to have to be derivative of the good that was already there and you know maybe maybe sauron even learned oh these silmarils they're too easy to lose they're too easy to get lost or stolen so why don't i just keep it attached to me teach it attached to my my hand or to my finger you know And so it's one of those things where it has that kind of practical component, but he can still have all of the power that he, you know, he only saw the Silmarils in terms of power. He didn't necessarily, um, or at least I'm not even going to say he didn't recognize the beauty in them, but he was more consumed by the power that's in them. And so he just took the power from it and put that into the ring.
2: Well, like earlier, what you were saying, Thomas, about uh, in Dune, uh, Paul Atreides having the, the signet ring, that's kind of what the similar rules were. They're kind of more of a status symbol and they don't really have much like power in themselves like the ring does, because they're more of just an object that's not really doesn't have a will of its own. They do have kind of some powers because don't they like burn uh like if, if certain uh, people Ungoliant? touch them, they like, yeah, yeah, they burn evil. Yeah. And nothing
0: unclean is able to touch them, which is why I think Morgoth puts them in the crown in upon crown. his head. Rather yeah, that than,
2: could. Yeah. Yeah, and like you were saying, Mike, that could be where Sauron kind of got an idea.
1: It was like, a <laughs> crown is just a ring for your head, right? Exactly.
0: <laughs> it's funny, because in, in the Rings of Power, when, when they're originally thinking what they should use the mithril for, don't they at one point go, maybe we could make a crown? And they're like, no, oh, yeah. it should be something smaller. And I... <laughs> So I like that they, they did address in the show that there were other ideas before hitting on the Sauron hits on the idea of the rings of power. But yeah, yeah I and-
1: mean, well, I think to the you you've mentioned the thing about the will, um, the will being put into the ring or the will of the ring moving someone. And you're kind of contrasting that to the similar where you're saying they don't have that type of power. But if you can think of the the episodes where, um, you know, because of course the elves are obsessed with them, but yeah, I mean, everybody's obsessed with them. They had power, but it wasn't the overwhelming, um, like it wasn't the imposing power. It was the inspiring power in the Silmarils as opposed to the imposing power of the ring. And so again, th- it's, it's not that one had power and the other didn't. It was what type of power are we working with? And right. if we're talking contrast, good versus evil, right? What is the power that's in good? It's not me making you do the right thing. It's, you seeing the right thing and wanting the right thing for its own sake as opposed to you know i'm going to make you do what i want you to do right take away your freedom or your agency that's where you know it becomes an issue that's the the problematic thing
2: yeah it's well and, and even to kind of give a real world example of the the magic the gathering the whole one ring card <laughs> uh-uh. becoming such a such a sought after thing it's like it's a piece of cardboard that has no intrinsic value other than what people it's, I mean, it's, we could get a, that's describing our, a lot of our economy right now, but, um, not to get into <laughs> politics, but, um, you know, it's, it's a thing that people believe it has value. So it has value. So, mm-hmm. well, I mean, I, I, I believe the similar rules probably had more value than, than, you know, a, a piece of cardboard, but, um, you know, it's kind of the same thing as like people, they give it value because they think it has value versus it's something like having value in and of itself.
0: Right, and, and Morgoth, you know, like you said, Jeff, he kind of viewed them, having them as just a status symbol and to keep other people from having them. Like, I feel good if I can have them and other, and dispossess other people.
2: Well, even before that, Feanor kept the Silmarils because he, like, didn't want, he didn't want to show, he made these, he made them, and then he didn't want to show anybody. And it was right. like, yeah. he, he wanted to keep them hidden for himself and his and his sons, basically, and it wasn't until, like, Other people kind of was like, hey, I want to see that, see those. And then, you know, they were stolen uh, by Melkor because he wanted them for the same reason. So, yeah, it's yeah, like that's a good way to put it, Mike. It doesn't they don't impose power, but they inspire power in in a negative way. The Silmarils did. So
0: it just occurred to me, too, that another artifact that kind of in The Hobbit that kind of influenced what the ring would later become in The Lord of the Rings is the Arkenstone. And the the influence of the dragon sickness that it has over over Thorin. Because, you know, once he starts obsessing over the Arkenstone, he's like, no one else can have it. You know, and when it's revealed that Bilbo was the one who gave it to Bard and the elves and stuff. Thorin completely changes. He goes from in a second goes from Bilbo's threat friend to threatening to kill him.
1: Mm hmm. You know, and yeah, no, there's definitely, a, I guess, almost like a a, a type sort of um mm. for what the what what one could see happen with the ring later on, too. Right.
0: Yeah. And I, I like that. People, because the Lord of the Rings has influenced essentially every fantasy that's been written after it. People f- forget how when it came out, the Lord of the Rings was really, really original and undermined a lot of the fantasy tropes that were common at the time because the, the ring in The Lord of the Rings is almost like the anti MacGuffin, where, like, the, the common fantasy trope of that time, and still is in a lot of fantasy stories, is the hero has to go out and find the talisman. And once he finds it, he will be given the power to defeat evil Whereas in the Lord of the Rings, it's the inverse of this. The hero is given the talisman of power, but he has to lose it to to get rid of it. And that is what will undo evil rather than beating evil at its own game with a magic talisman.
1: And Tolkien knew that, and he trolled every other story by making Boromir the one who wanted to do exactly what everybody does in every other story. In every other fantasy story. And takes the power, right? Boromir is the one who wants to take the power and use it for good. And, oh, no, he's, you know, I know he's not a bad guy. He's he's redeemed and all that stuff. But he's saying, no, that's not the way, you know, and again, if we want to see the sort of allegory for the, the Christian's life or the spiritual life, that's not how grace works. Right? right. That's not grace isn't the one that that tries to take take the power right or impose the power. It's the one that has to sacrifice the power, sacrifice oneself.
0: Yeah. And it's, it's just that is so subversive to like, you know, the 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 spirit of the world that's dominant now where power is everything. And I just I just think people don't see how sub subversive of the fan of a lot of common things in the fantasy genre that the Lord of the Rings is. It's just because the. The, the sort of Lord of the Rings aesthetic has become so popular. People forget that the themes of it like undoes a lot of what's common even today in
1: fantasy. It kind of reminds me of, you know, people will sometimes talk about how um, even though in many ways, you know, Christendom is over. People have rejected, at least in many ways, consciously Christianity or the church. And yet there's still the, the fumes from that fire. Are still permeated. We still use the the language of Christian morality or Christian um, Christian ethics, Christian justice, when it comes to even the very secular way that people will try to operate in the world. And so it's like we're you know, and I think it's that Flannery O'Connor line of we're a, a God haunted society or a God haunted people or Christ haunted people. And in some ways, even those who try to consciously you know. Because you think of like the uh, the Golden Compass series, I think the Philip Pullman one, where it's like he was purposely trying to go against what Tolkien had created, and yet he still is derivative of Tolkien. So it's like in the same way that you you think that you're trying to like destroy Christianity or undermine it, you're actually by using that same language, you're still drawing from that same well, and so you can't avoid it. You know, God. I mean, if God's the ground of reality, we we can't get ourselves out of that as much as we might try, and. It's the same thing when when people try to write fantasy is like you, you can't help but, you know, pull something from what Tolkien has already done.
0: Right. Yeah. And it almost reminds me, too, of the way like Sauron himself as a sub creator, as as a creature that creates is is just imitating. Eru Iluvatar, he's still being derivative in a way.
1: Well, that's right, the music yeah. of the Ionor, right? It's like, right. you thought that you could make your own music, but I'm going to actually use, bring your music into mine. I mean, that's the, uh, that's, um oh, oh my gosh, what's the, not the problem of evil, but that's Providence. Yeah, that's, yeah. I mean, oh, what is that? I can't, I always forget the word for it. No, oh, cut this out. <laughs> there's <even> the, <laughs> yeah, well, there's even
2: in, uh, I think we talked about this before on the podcast. There's the theory that in, in Lord of the Rings that, that it, Ariel is the one who, who actually knocked Gollum into the fire because it was oh
1: sure
2: there's it was you know the, it, that the ring couldn't have they couldn't have gotten there without Gollum they couldn't have and then even like you needed you needed something because no one was gonna get rid of the ring no one was gonna be able to to throw it into the fire so you needed Gollum there to be the one to hold on to it so that Frodo could live and. I'm kinda of talking like Thomas Sanherho and saying Gollum was the ultimate hero. <laughs> yeah, the, the hero. About, I was gonna but... say
1: you mean Gollum, <laughs> the hero the true hero of the uh of yeah. the Lord of the Rings? Oh yeah, we, oh, we've talked yeah. about that before <laughs> on this podcast. So, yeah. So, yeah,
2: so Thomas the Settler, word yeah, had a
1: little theodicy, bit of a That was the word I couldn't think of. odyssey. Mm. That's where the whole, you know, oh. good coming out of evil sort of thing. But yeah, that I mean it goes exactly into what you're talking about. The um and yeah, it almost I mean, well Yeah, the whole thing about did it have to be Gollum and why did it have to? I mean, that's a it's a fun question to kind of speculate about, too, for sure.
0: And it's interesting, too, how the ring is seemingly throughout the entire story, Sauron's greatest power. Yet it's his greatest weakness because he's poured so much of himself into it. Um, I know that uh, that there's this one collection of Tolkien's writings that's actually called Morgoth's Ring. And it was put together by Christopher. And what that refers to is that the world itself, Arda, is almost like Morgoth's ring because Morgoth poured a lot of his power into the, the lands that he dominated and the creatures that he created, like orcs and dragons and stuff. And he became this kind of very weak being by the end of the First Age. He he rarely ever leaves Angband. He He can be... He can be uh, wounded and you know, he's wounded in the foot. He's he's clawed across the face by Thorondor, Lord of the Eagles. You know, like he's not like the other Valar anymore. He's he's by be, by trying to become more powerful and dominating the physical world. Morgoth has has fatally weakened himself.
1: I mean, doesn't that sound exactly like in the Christian tradition where they talk about the the, angel, the angels having like power over the the heavenly spheres. And, you know, we're the silent planet, right? To use that kind of C.S. Lewis um, image. And so we're the one that is controlled by by Lucifer. We're the one that's controlled by. And but then what does Jesus talk about in the gospel of he's going to bind up the strong man, the one who had power over this sphere, over this earth is going to be, you know, knocked out of power or taken over or weakened. And so it, it definitely has that. You can kind of see the that Christian um, parallel, too.
0: Oh, yeah, definitely. And how like um, there's even, I believe, some extra biblical writings that talk about that are commentaries on Genesis that talk about some of the fallen angels coming into Earth and making of them making for themselves bodies out of matter and losing some of their, you know, powers that they had as as beings of the of the celestial spheres and and stuff like that. And so it, yeah, that that's definitely something that's been in G, in Judeo-Christian thought for a long time. So I mean like the the, the Ring of Power is such a unique, you know, talisman that we could go on talking about it for ages, but have, have we missed anything really
1: important? One age, two age, three, 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 four ages, ages, four ages.
0: I guess we could go on talking about this, but yeah, have have we missed any important points? I'm I'm sure viewers will let us know, but do do you guys have any, uh, have any other aspects we want to talk about?
2: I think it's, it's interesting that it's true that, that the true, uh, form, I guess, isn't revealed until it's thrown into fire. Like, because to all outward appearances, it's just it's a simple, simple gold ring. And and it looks it looks prettier because it's it has it's trying to get you to put it on and get you to, you know, bind. It's trying to bind itself to you or bind you to it. Um, but it's interesting that like it's when you I, I, I'm curious, I, maybe I'll know more about this in the writings of Tolkien about why why. Why does fire make the make the black speech appear on it? Hmm. Where, you know is because it's like if you're trying to keep it maybe it, i mean i guess sauron never would have intended to be parted from the ring unless like you were saying he he left it behind when he went to uh uh went to, was taken to numenor um but like i don't know if you'll have any thoughts on on why the fire makes it appear i mean i i guess it it it, it does seem kind of like a mythological like an archetype of that fire reveals fire it refines things so by sticking it in the fire it, it reveals uh and it's the true nature of the ring to someone who knows right um, I don't know if y'all have any
1: no, I think that's that was probably where mine my, my mind was kind of going too right I mean that's what we that's a very biblical image to use fire as this purifying or revealing thing and so it, you could kind of see how it would it would make sense for this for the in this case too
2: and even to think taking that a step further is like it's it's like the opposite of of kind of the refiner's fire or kind of a purgatorial thing where and, you know in the refiner's fire or in purgatory the the soul is purified and it it's not gonna be a pleasant experience um <laughs> it it's it's probably you know i mean to use our our human terms it like it we use fire as the as kind of the metaphor there, but the ring doesn't isn't affected by fire like it it's not it's almost like it's immune from from that kind of punishment like it's i don't know you know if there's any deeper meaning to that but it's like it's it's quite cool as gandalf says in the
1: <laughs> I mean we could we could take this all you know if you want to keep going with it too it's like it's been hardened right we think of like a hardened heart and how it's going to take a lot hotter fire to melt that that hardened rock or in this case the this hardened metal and so what does it take it doesn't just take a regular fire it takes the the fire of mount doom and so in the same way that you know if you want to talk about I mean, again, not to over spiritualize it, but yeah, it's the the fire is going to reveal how hardened you know we've we can sometimes make ourselves when it comes to the outpouring of grace uh, or anything like that too. But
0: yeah, it's it. I, I was thinking of like the the way that the classical world too, views fire as like the most refined or highest of the four elements too, mm. and how it only it, it like you said. Uh, Jeff, it kind of reveals other elements for what they are. You know, it, it breaks them down. But in this case, it doesn't break down the ring, but it reveals it to be the one ring. You know, and that only uh, on- they said, like, Dragon Fire could possibly consume the Rings of Power, but that there was no dragon on currently on Earth that was hot enough to do it. So there, w- there was no other option but to throw it into Mount Doom. Interesting, like, uh, Possible like alternate timeline if there had been a dragon that was where the old fire was hot enough
1: in the in the Tolkien verse is that what you have to jump into a different uh, Tolkien multiverse to find a dragon like that?
0: Well, I al- it's it's fine because like I I tell people I already consider the Rings of Power to be a separate timeline, and that that explains the uh, the how it diverges from what we would consider the established canon, be- and then that's how I I, I like I justify it to myself and that I don't get angry at it. Like some people do. I'm just like, Oh, eh, this is a different timeline. Maybe it's just because I like comic book movies. And so
2: I'm, I'm more used to that. So. <laughs> yeah. And the hobbits, the hobbit films are the darkest timeline, <laughs> <laughs> which is funny. Cause I, I actually have the, I actually own on, on the, I own a digital version of the hobbit films on Amazon. Cause I think there was like some kind of deal. I was like, and I like most of them have really the last one was the, the first two were, were, decent but the last one was yeah but i own them so like i'm one of the i'm i help support that piece of piece of film but but yeah it's like it's interesting yeah the tolkien the, the multiverse of tolkien and trying to figure I, I out where like, the divergence is
0: i like what what caitlin once said on this show where she said that sometimes she wonders whether those Hobbit movies were real
2: because of some of the <laughs> things she, that Yeah, I think she said, the, she, uh, she thinks she said she forgot that they existed or or, or they were something like or
0: that. It. Yeah, like because we were talking about the R- Radagast and his his pet uh, hedgehog. Named Sebastian yeah, that yeah. I had <laughs> forgotten about. And I was like wait, I was like, wait, what? No, we we will have to get to those movies eventually because there's I like the first one, but there's a funny yeah. a funny roast, I think, to be had of the Hobbit movies. But um yeah, if 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 you guys uh didn't have any other thoughts on uh the one ring of power, the 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 one ring to rule them all, the precious, I guess we can take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible. And on this episode specifically, we would like to thank Charlene B., Mina M., Leslie G., Joe N., and Amy G. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give. Help us to continue to create the secrets of Middle-Earth and all of our shows here at StarQuest. And you can join them by going to sqpn.com Slash give. And don't forget that another great way to support our show is by getting your official Secrets of Middle Earth Gear at SQPN.com slash merch. Now we'd love to hear from you, of course, our listeners, what are your ideas and theories about Sauron's One Ring? Did we miss anything important? You can let us know at SQPN.com slash Middle Earth on our Facebook page or on Twitter by sending an email to MiddleEarth at sqpn.com by leaving us a comment on YouTube or by visiting our channel on the StarQuest Discord server at sqpn.com Discord. And join us next time for another discussion of Tolkien's Marvelous Realm of Middle-Earth. But until then, Mike Schramm, thank you for joining me in sharing the secrets of Middle-Earth.
1: Thanks, Thomas. Uh, what can I say about our time together? It is a gift.
0: <laughs> it is a gift. And Jeff Hecker, thank you also. Thank you, Thomas. Once again, I'm Thomas Salerno. Thank you for listening to The Secrets of Middle-Earth right here on StarQuest. Here's another show on the StarQuest Network you're sure to enjoy. Let's Science. Find the show wherever fine podcasts are found or at sqpn.com slash science.